All right, let's get going. So in the early 1980s, my parents decided to homeschool my sister and myself. They were on the road all the time. They were um, kind of part-time professional musicians, part-time traveling geologists. And uh, those are an interesting combination, but we were all always on the road. And my mom thought it would be great if we didn't have to stay home and send the kids off to school. And that was kind of their first sort of entrance into the homeschooling world. Uh, they didn't really realize it at the time, but there were some pretty strict laws in Colorado concerning homeschooling. It wasn't exactly legal. At least you couldn't do it exactly the way you wanted to. There was a state-sponsored curriculum that you had to adhere to, and you had to go through your local school board for approval. And a lot of counties really didn't like homeschooling. There were families at the time who had truancy laws, charges brought up against them. They had social services show up at their houses, take their kids away. One family that I know of actually fled in the middle of the night to another state to avoid that happening. My sister and I, when we were out in the middle of the day during the week, um, we were instructed if we were approached, we are uh, from a private school and we're on a field trip. My sister struggled with anxiety about this. She actually had nightmares pretty regularly that social services was going to come and take her away. I kind of liked it because <laughs> I'm weird like that, and I thought it was really interesting and fun to be part of this sort of rebellious you know, group of people. Um, anyway, in the mid-1980s, there were two moms. Two moms in Colorado, Roy Schneeberger, Trion Goosen, uh, Rory was a good friend of my parents. Uh, they took it upon themselves to change these laws and make freedom happen. They fought, they lobbied, despite much resistance. Trion's family actually had their phone tapped. They later found out her husband worked for the phone company and he discovered it. Um, my parents jumped into that battle right alongside them. And uh, I spent a lot of time at the Colorado State Capitol as a young kid. I kind of thought that was just normal life. In 1988, finally, a bill was passed that established homeschooling as a viable option and gave freedoms to homeschoolers. Subsequent years improved on that freedom up through about 1994. If you homeschool in Colorado, you have these two moms to thank for your freedom, along with my parents and a few other families. And the experience made me intimately familiar with this incredible concept of we the people that is American government. In American society. It's vastly different than the monarchies that have dominated the majority of history. And it's kind of revolutionary to think that people can govern themselves without a king or a monarch. It's not a completely foreign idea to history. Israel was like that for about 400 years, though I would not argue that they did it well, as evidenced by all the chaos in the book of Judges. But there was a point where they said, God, we want a king. And God said, you know what that's going to mean? He's going to oppress you. He's going to take your kids for his army. He's going to tax you. He's going to burden you with you and confiscate your property. But they said, no, we want a king. And so they established King Saul. And I don't know that things went well for them after that. <laughs> the American model of we the people, a government by the people, for the people, is kind of a groundbreaking idea, honestly. I got to see firsthand the by the people part enacted as a couple of determined mothers influenced the decision of the civil magistrate, as the Bible refers to the government. One family that my parents had partnered with were in our local church. Their son was one of my best friends at the time as I was kind of approaching middle school, but they had a disagreement with my family. My mom started feeling bogged down by the constant lobbying, the constant fear, the constant just pressure to see what was happening and keep up on things and get down to the Capitol. And, and my friend's mom really uh, thought that was a bad thing. My mom expressed to her desire. She wanted to homeschool. She wanted to focus on that. She wanted to do ministry in the local church. Um, but this family saw my mom's pulling back from that as a betrayal of this like shared vision that they had. And they separated. There was a sharp parting of ways. And at a pivotal age for me, my best friend was ripped away from me. And I never saw him again. A couple other families left the church. They actually started a church of their own that had this primary focus on being politically active. 
I found myself the lone homeschool kid in this pivotal middle school era um, amidst a whole bunch of public schoolers who kind of thought I was weird. It was kind of a weird season for me because all the homeschoolers I interacted with thought I was cool and the public schoolers thought I was a nerd. So I had kind of this dual existence, but that's a story for another time. (laughs) And that's not to say that just because my mom was kind of fed up with that fast-paced political lifestyle, it's not to say that they stopped being politically active. They continued. They hadn't shifted in their beliefs or even really their engagement. It just took different forms. I remember my dad's band playing for uh, this... I think it was a Republican meeting thing, whatever. All I remember is I was sitting next to Senator Ben, Horse, ben Nighthorse Campbell. Um, the year he had switched from being a Democrat to being a Republican, had a good conversation with him, really interesting one. Um, and then my dad's bluegrass band played. They were called the Buffalo Chips. <laughs> and the bass player had a washtub stand-up bass and real twangy tenor voice. And we participated, and we lobbied and we did all kinds of stuff. My dad co-founded and played a founding role, um, key role in running Colorado's primary homeschool group and convention back in the day. One of the original two moms that had fought for homeschooling back then, Rory Schneeberger. She called my parents one time when I was about 15. She said, hey, this senator who's been really friendly to us needs a legislative intern. Would Travis be interested in doing that? So I found myself decked out in a Goodwill suit and tie riding the bus for about an hour and a half down to the Capitol building in Denver during the legislative session, and I ended up sitting in meetings and taking notes and answering the phone and researching bills and wandering around, bringing messages to the governor and all kinds of crazy things that a 15-year-old maybe shouldn't be trusted with. (laughs) I was the youngest legislative intern in the state of Colorado. The pain of seeing relationships in the church break over political engagement stuck with me and sits with me to this day. And during the COVID season, I was reminded of that pain as that pain came back and more relationships severed. I remember during the whole government making the churches shut down season, I had two meetings in the same day One person sat me down at a coffee shop and said, we weren't submitting enough as a church to the government. And they were considering leaving the church for it. Two hours later, I was sitting in the same place with a different person who was telling me that some of you was submitting too much and they were considering leaving the church for it. Thought maybe we're in the right place. I don't know. But people left, and division was painful, and many of us in this room have felt that. The Fort Collins Church Network um, asked me at the time to draft the Church Network's letter of sort of a COVID stance, and in the first paragraph that I wrote after it went through the board and they did all their editing, I started off the letter by saying, we are all asking this question, when can we resume normal activities? But under that question is the deeper and real question we're all asking. At what point do we call out government overreach and respond by gathering as a large group anyway? Maybe just to put it bluntly, when do we disobey the government? Is that ever okay? Pastors had to grapple during that season with the government's recommendations to not gather in person while simultaneously seeing the biblical exhortation that we are not to give up meeting together. The history of the relationship between the church and the state is really not a great relationship for the last 2,000 years. In fact, it's quite bloody. In the 16th and 17th centuries, a lot of that came to a head in Europe. Henry VIII wanted to get a divorce. The Catholic Pope, Henry VIII was Catholic. The Catholic Pope wouldn't grant him his divorce. So there went through this process amongst other cultural influences that basically started the English Reformation and did away with the Pope's authority and put Henry VIII in charge of this new thing called the Church of England so he could get his divorce. And then his daughter, there was a a son in there, but then his daughter Mary came to the throne. She was called Bloody Mary because she decided that Henry's stuff was a little too Protestant 
And since he was the head of the church, she could be the head of the church. So she restored England back to Catholicism and then proceeded to start executing Protestants, burning them at the stake, exiling them. Her successor, her half-sister, Elizabeth I, she favored the Protestants, and so she established more freedom, but still persecuted Christians who didn't conform to the Church of England. They became known as separatists. A group of them later migrated to America. Uh, we know them as the Pilgrims and the Puritans. Pilgrims settled in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And so um, I think at this point, I saw this meme yesterday. This is kind of where they were at. This is the only graph you need by now. You've got trust in government versus knowledge of history. And I think they were thinking as they founded America that there was this strong aversion to governmental interference with church matters, which resulted in this unique place that we exist in today where we have religious freedom. We have toleration. People have the right to practice their religion without governmental interference. At least that's how the founders were thinking. Fast forward today, I think we're facing a little bit of a different reality in some places. Under the banner of Congress making no law respecting an establishment of religion, it seems like maybe that's flipped to mean that we're supposed to have a government without theistic influence at all, meaning we're not supposed to bring our faith into our politics, which I don't think is what the founders intended. Now, they weren't all Christians, the writers of the Constitution, but they did write religious freedom into the Constitution, not just to keep it out of the government, but to allow us to fully express our faith and live it out in all spheres of life without having the government intrude on that. There's some basic political thought for me for this morning. <laughs> um, I would contend today that the government does jump into church affairs in a lot of different ways, and we saw that during COVID, where the church struggled to understand what to do as the government asked the church to do certain things. Whether that was right, whether that was wrong, whether we were right or wrong on vaccines and masks, that's not necessarily what I want to go into. It's just that we are experiencing a season where Christians are asking questions. What do we do about the government? And I just want to share a struggle as I begin here, because when we plan the series that we're in the middle of on the Old Testament law, the topic of theonomy came up. And I volunteered to teach it, because I'm curious about things, and I love studying nerdy things, but also because I have friends in the church who have embraced post-millennial theonomy, and friends outside the church and other Christian circles, and it's caught my attention. Part of my role as church elder church pastor, church overseer, as described in Hebrews 13, is that I'm supposed to keep watch on the flock. Why? Because I'm actually accountable to God for what happens here, and we have to make sure that we t keep notice of what things might be potentially divisive. I said post-millennial theonomy out loud. Some of you are like, what in the world is that? I don't know. <laughs> because I think we can talk openly about these things without dividing As pastors, we've been just clue in on what's happening behind closed doors. We've been talking about eschatology. That's the study of end times for those of you that don't like big words. Postmillennialism is one of those views. In our hearts, I think, as we've discussed it, we're unified on one primary factor, and that's there's a lot of room in the end times debate for viewpoints that are within orthodoxy. There are heretical views. We won't go to those views, but we don't want to divide over those ones that are seen as potentially within biblical orthodoxy that are okay. Because we've got much bigger fish to fry in our pursuit of the Great Commission. That doesn't mean we want to ignore each view. We don't not want to talk about them. We want to talk about them. We may even do an eschatology class sometime soon and open that can of worms or poke the beehive, however you want to... Maybe that's a better analogy, because the conversation can get a little hot sometimes, right? <laughs> but I want to be clear. We believe that the three, maybe four, maybe three and a half positions on eschatology that are in this room, held, I think, pretty strongly by some of you, are within orthodoxy and not worth dividing over. So for you post-millennial brothers and sisters in the room, I want to say that I love you. And I want to say that I expect to see you in heaven with me. 
after the premillennial reign. <laughs> um, maybe it would be better for us to just be pan-millennial, because it's all going to pan out at some point. Will it be obvious which one of us was right? I, I think we need to pray. It's going to take a miracle for us to get along on some of these divisive issues. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do believe that if we're in Christ, that you reside within us. And your body, the church, is a temple. And it's holy, and it's sacred, and it's set apart. And you don't want it divided. I pray that we'd be able to approach things like the role of government with grace, with humility, with wisdom. Make us shrewd as serpents and yet innocent as doves gentle as we walk into these conversations with one another. Guide us through the rest of this morning, I pray. I pray this will be something that is highly productive for your kingdom, Jesus, because we do believe it's true, the thing you said in John 17 in your prayer, that if the body isn't unified, if we're not one, the implication is that the world won't see the Father and his love for the world. We don't want that to happen. We want to be one so the world can see. Guide us in that. Empower us to do that. It's going to take a miracle. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I do want to talk about theonomy. That was one word I mentioned a little bit. But I think under the higher topic above that of unity versus division, I think one error we can make when we're trying to maintain unity is to just treat potentially divisive topics like you'd treat your weird uncle at Thanksgiving where you just don't bring it up. Right? But I don't think that's right. We should be able to openly discuss these things. But I think another error is thinking that we're going to have to agree on everything. We need complete conformity of thought. But the reality is that's not going to happen. God made us all extremely different with different personalities and giftings and understandings of the world and history. Unity doesn't have to mean complete conformity of thought. But we should be able to openly discuss. An exhortation may be for people in the room who are wired like me, um, who are... Enjoy, you enjoy wading into a debate sometimes. A good debate is just really thrilling and fun. That, that's me. I think it can be done well, but sometimes we'll use that to ignore real spirituality. Remember the woman at the well? Jesus said, go call your husband. She said, I don't have a husband. He said, I know. You've had five, and the one that you're living with, you're not married to. What did she say at that point? Let's talk about the millennium. No, I mean, it wasn't really that. She said, let's talk about where we're supposed to worship, this hill or that hill. He's like, no, we're talking about your life. In other words, she's trying to do, let's talk about anything but me. As we're debating these things, sometimes I fear the cost of the real things we're supposed to be talking about. We can get so sidetracked. I think we're at risk of that. I think we've come through a long season with COVID of doing just that, being sidetracked, thanks COVID. Um, I do want to look at theonomy for a few minutes so we at least get a basic understanding of it because it is a viewpoint that's kind of rapidly on the rise, kind of concerning the law, which we're in a series about the law, so it's relevant, and how it relates to modern government. And then we'll move on to what I really want to talk about and end with, which is unity and division. So, theonomy. It's really just the combination of two Greek words, uh, theos and namas, God's law, is all it really means. Um, though, in implication, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just that. Um, so, God's law as opposed to uh, autonomy, which would be self-law. So, it's basically the belief that the judicial laws of the Mosaic Covenant, that's the, the laws that were handed down to Moses in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, that the judicial laws should be normative for all modern geopolitical entities. So civil governments today should enforce Old Covenant judicial laws along with their penalties. And any law that's not included in that Old Testament, Old Covenant judicial law shouldn't be included in your modern civil 
governments. So theonomy takes that law, places every aspect of life, the civil, the social, the personal, the family, places it under God's law, specifically the Mosaic law. Theonomy has been known as Christian Reconstructionism, which is basically theonomy applied in a framework that applies to an entire nation, though not all theonomists would call themselves that. And it's usually coupled with post-millennial eschatology, which I'm not going to define or get into today. I think we can probably uncouple that just a little bit just to study this one piece of it. The history of this movement, it really began in the 1950s, the 1960s. Um, the first character that brought this up was R.J. Rushduni. Um, born in 1916, he was an Armenian immigrant, well, his parents were. And uh, not Arminian, like Arminius versus Calvin, like Calvinism versus Arminian. He was very Calvinist, actually. But he's from Armenia, at least his parents were. Uh, one of the interesting things that I found about him as I was studying is that in his heritage from Armenia, the Old Testament sacrifices were still being observed in Christian form. Animal sacrifices, they weren't viewed as atoning sacrifices. They were viewed as memorials to Christ. And so as part of their regular Christian life to sacrifice animals. And I kind of wonder if that influenced how he interprets Scripture and the application of Old Covenant stuff to New Covenant. His son-in-law was Gary North. Was Gary North. Um, he was... Also a key figure, um, kind of a loud one, a little bit brash. Found some interesting statements that he had made that I won't repeat here. Um, and then the next one, and this is probably the one who's, um, in my opinion, had the most nuance to his teaching. I've read several books by him at this point. Um, long, long, very, very detailed books. He's a student of Cornelius Van Til, if you know anything about presuppositional apologetics. All three of these guys were in the, uh, the OPC Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, so Bonson was probably the best advocate for the theonomic position. More modern adherents to theonomy like Jeff Durbin are always referring back to Greg Bonson. He, like I said, he, I think he articulates it the best, honestly. Um, interestingly, though, the movement has seen a lot of division. So we have Gary North as Rush Dooney's son-in-law. Well, they had a sharp splitting of ways over a theological issue in the 1980s, and as far as I can tell, they never talked to one another again after that. North, in particular, who's kind of a grumpy guy, as I, as I stated, that's been one of my issues as I've studied this out. I've been studying this for a very long time now, <laughs> reading a ton, um, and their attitude is really, really, really fascinating. Let's just say when they denounce their opponents, they do it in this very blunt, aggressive, kind of uncomplimentary way. So, for instance, I read Greg Bonson's By This Standard, and uh, the foreword is by Gary North, and he says, and I disagreed with some of his premise, honestly, after reading it. But in the foreword, Gary North says, if anyone is a critique of this argument, if they, if they are so arrogant as to critique this argument, they are mindlessly outraged, and they don't have the self-discipline to truly try to understand the argument. So I guess I have no choice but to admit, based on his argument, that I lack self-discipline and I'm mindlessly outraged. Even though I, I had, I mean, I think my notes document for that book alone is 9,000 words. Theonomy's successors are individuals like Gary DeMar, Joe Boot, James White, Jeff Durbin. Um, David Chilton wrote a book. He was also influenced by Gary North. He wrote a book on post-millennial dominion theology, which also included theonomy, called Paradise Restored. Um, Douglas Wilson from Cannon Press in Idaho, he said that was the book that he read, which ultimately converted him to the viewpoint. There's a lot more than that. You might be asking why we want to talk about this right now. I think it's just mainly because it's become very popular in recent years. Some of my friends are embracing it. Um, and I think we need to have a conversation about it. Like I said, we need to talk openly about these things that could potentially be divisive. One of the reasons I think it's so popular lately is because it's modern adherents, the newer ones I mentioned, like Jeff Durbin, um, Apologio Studios. Um, they're, they're amazing on social media, Twitter. They're just brilliant on YouTube. They're everywhere and they're masters of it. So if you go on Google and you Google, let's just say dispensational premillennial theology, what's probably going to come up first is a video from Jeff Durbin refuting it. Honestly, it's genius. It's made it super accessible for kind of just everybody. And I think that it's, 
hit right smack dab in the middle of this season where we had this COVID disruptor thing causing people to ask a bunch of questions. And honestly, they were right there to answer those questions. They, I think, answered questions that maybe the typical American pastor or typical American church was shockingly ill-prepared to address during that time. I think as our culture gets more chaotic, we're seeing Christians kind of go back to the drawing board when it comes to politics. Younger generations are asking some serious questions. They're seeing fractures and divisions everywhere in their families. Parents and children not speaking together, not getting along when they're together at holidays. People in this very room have told me stories about what's going on in their families. And it's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to see the division. And people are wanting something solid. Evangelicalism reinventing itself every five to ten years really isn't helping, particularly the younger generation. And people are asking this even about America. Is this American freedom thing like we've supposed this is good? But is this good? If freedom means a drag queen can groom a child in a library, then I don't know if I want freedom. Is this what my grandfather fought for in the war? And people are asking that question. I don't know. I don't think we signed up for that. And what people are finding as they look for answers, I think, is many people like the theonomists, like Jeff Durbin, James White, Doug Wilson, Joe Boot, manly men with manly beards who have answers, who stood up against the government during COVID and didn't shut their churches down, who are telling you, if, if your pastor made you wear a diaper over your face, you need to leave that church. I think it was very appealing. Whether they're wrong or they're right, it was attractive. The more I listened to them, I've appreciated much of what they've brought, honestly, and agreed with much of it. But the way they denounce their opponents is just grating, divisive. And I just think we can do better than that. I wonder if we can wade into these waters and talk about theological distinctions and how we approach the government without cutting each other down and dividing. I think the younger generations in particular need that in America. People my age and younger, maybe much younger than me. A divided church isn't going to point them to Jesus. I've seen young people online who are saying they may be considering that monarchy or totalitarianism might be a better choice than what we're currently experiencing. That's downright scary to me because I think of two homeschool moms changing the course of the Colorado government. They'd never be able to do that in a totalitarian, top-down, centralized government. It's scary to me that there's young people thinking about giving that up. It doesn't make sense to me. I think it's worth preserving that a normal citizen can have a bottom-up effect on our civil government. I don't want to spend all my time here doing a long, in-depth refutation of theonomy. Honestly, Aaron did a pretty good job of it without you guys even really knowing on July 2nd in his teaching on how the Old Testament law applies today. And then Perry followed up with part two on that. I just wanted to mention a couple of things. I, um, I, don't act I agree actually with the term, God's law. I mean, this, we have no other standard, and Bonson was really a great champion of that. We don't have any other standard than God's law by which to live. Whether that's in the church or the government, I think that's true. But they would say secular people just experience autonomy. That's how they process everything completely separate from God, and that can only produce chaos. And I think that that's maybe false because of what I read in Romans 2. We were just reading this the other night as a family, and this one really stuck out to me. Um, Romans 2, starting verse 12, says, For all who have sinned without the law also perish without the law. All who've sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So indicating if you have the law, meaning specifically the Mosaic law that's been written down, that Mosaic law will judge you and you'll perish underneath it. But if you don't have it, Paul's saying you're also going to perish, even though you don't have that law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified, meaning all people will need to do the law, whether they've heard it or not. And here is the clincher. 
Verse 14, when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They don't have the Mosaic law with all of its civil case laws and penalties and all that spelled out, but what they do have is the law written on their heart. While their conscience bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean autonomy if you don't have the Mosaic law. The Gentiles have a law, a moral law, a moral law built into them from creation. It's written on their hearts, Paul says. It's called the natural law. And so you run into this where you have social media engagement. You should present your views correctly or engage in the either-or fallacy, and that's exactly what they're doing when Jeff Durbin says it's either Christ or it's chaos. He says it's either the Mosaic Law applied exhaustively in detail or it's absolute secular chaos, and there's nothing in between. I'll submit that the Mosaic Law gives us a lot more guidelines than maybe just that natural law does, but the basics are there. For a secular man exerting his influence on government, even without full knowledge of the Mosaic Law, because he's got it written on his heart. Things like, he knows theft, rape, cannibalism, bestiality, those are wrong. Every human being is born with that knowledge. It's written on their hearts. And if they're being honest, they will write that into their laws. And so it's not complete chaos on another side. So watch out for either or argumentation, especially if it ignores clear biblical teaching. I think we can be better than that. That's one issue I came across when I was reading Bonson's By the Standard in particular. Another one is that theonomists will hold to a threefold division of the law. They separate the law into moral, ceremonial, and civil. And they will say that... Of the three, the ceremonial has been fulfilled in Christ. The priesthood still remains. It's just been replaced with a better priesthood. That is the priesthood of Jesus. Whoever stands before us pleading our case and his blood has covered over for us for all time all of the needs and desires of God in terms of the ceremonial. But they would say that the moral and civil will still remain. They will then, though, join those into one, saying moral and civil are simultaneously the same thing and call it a twofold division of the law that we are still obligated for those first two instead of just the ceremonial. I think Aaron did a great job on July 2nd of arguing that there's not a division of the law, threefold or twofold. The Bible actually doesn't say that. The Old Covenant, um, all of the law actually, is combined in the Bible. It never separates any of it out. It all rises and falls together. And I think he made a really, really great case that that entire Old Covenant has been abrogated. So go back and listen to his sermon and then listen to Perry's follow-up if you missed those two things, because those will actually give you a lot, a lot of really good meat that I think refutes theonomy at its most basic level. And actually, to end here, I would like to move on from theonomy as a topic. I could dive extremely deep into this one. I've got all kinds of thoughts on how the New Testament um, does not uphold it. Um, But I don't want to, because honestly, I think it's just distracting. At the beginning of time, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, they were in paradise in perfect unity with God. Remember, the father of lies showed up with the intent and purpose to divide them. He said, did God really say and inserted this contentious question into their unity with their father. And you know the story, they fell. What he really attacked was their unity with God, their closeness to their father, their oneness with their creator. The Garden of Eden was this beautiful thing, but they fell, they were cast out of the garden. God placed an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance to the garden, which I think was probably the first form of government. You shall not pass. (laughs) Blocking the way back to Eden. We've been looking for Eden ever since. Yearning for it, in fact. Yearning for that unity, that oneness that man used to have with God. 
And all humans are now under that, that curse, the fall, disunified with God, separated, far off, no adherence to any sort of external law, behavior pattern can bring them back into that perfect unity. But God had a plan that that original law and covenant could only hint at, as we see in Hebrews 8. It foreshadowed a more perfect Covenant, the old one points in a direction, but it still leaves us wanting. It can't deliver. It's not complete. It's not Eden. But God's response to that separation, that disunity, was to flip the script in the form of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, you were disunified at odds with your father, separated. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Getting lost in these endless argumentations distracts us from our primary task, which is to help the people in this world who are far off, disunified from God, disconnected with an impossible divide of separation between them and the only thing that can bring them life. Our primary task is to help bring those people near to become one again with their Father. Look at what is offered in the blood of Christ. No earthly paradise established by some law on our government, whether here locally or across the world, can compare to that. Jesus said in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life. This is what's being offered in the Great Commission. This is what our task is should we choose to not be so divided as to get distracted. I give them eternal life. We have the opportunity to give a younger generation, a whole generation of Americans and people across the entire globe What short-term gain is worth dividing over that pulls people away from this opportunity that they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand, God says. That is our primary task. Takes the gospel to every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation, people across the aisle from us so they can be transformed from the inside out rather than trying to force them through some external law and I'd like to finish with Ephesians 4 because I think there's a role of the Holy Spirit in this for us as we pursue that goal together, starting with unity. Wait, wait a minute. Oh, you know what I had intended here? We should pull out Bibles. That's what I wanted. Forgot. Pull out your Bible. Go to Ephesians 4. It's toward the end. It's after Galatians. And we'll finish with this. There's two kinds of unity in Ephesians 4. Here's the first one. He says, I therefore, this is, this is Paul, a prisoner of the Lord. So he's under government oppression. He's not writing to them to overthrow the government or bottom up the government or implement Mosaic law into the government or anything. He says, actually, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. He does make a point to put that in there for us. I think there's, there's a point to that urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So get out there and scream at people and yell at them. That's the manner worthy. No. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the first kind of unity in here is this unity of the spirit. And it's hardwired. It's in us when we're saved. Like we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We receive this power and it knits us together in unity with every other believer who's destined for eternity. 
brought near, unified with the Father by the blood of Jesus Christ, which means that if you have the Holy Spirit, you have more in common with global Christians who may not speak your language, they may not know anything about your politics, or they may be on the opposite side of the aisle from your politics, they may have different preferences to you, look different than you, you have way more in common with them than you do with someone who may share all of your points of view in government, but isn't a believer and doesn't enjoy the Bible. That's true. So how do we maintain that unity? Verse 3, we are eager to maintain it. Well, the, the, the hint there is in verse 2, I think, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. It's relational. That's how we maintain it. The bond of peace is relational. We're called to be diligent to maintain it, meaning it doesn't maintain itself. It doesn't happen accidentally. And then look at the reasons why, starting in verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Walk in a manner worthy of that. That's what we're called to church. I can't think of any higher thing. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul has a call to unity. Be of the same mind, he says. Be of the same judgment. He keeps hearing about divisions among the Corinthian church. Some are following Paul. Some follow Peter. Some follow Apollos. He says, has Christ been divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? No, it was Christ. Why are you following Paul and his philosophies? He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 3, he couldn't even talk to them as adults. He had to talk to them as if they were babies. Why? Because what do babies do? They bicker. They're selfish. They think of only themselves. They want their own way. They put themselves first. They don't care about the interests of others. And Paul says, you're so immature, I had to give you milk. Because you weren't ready for solid food. You're too fleshly. Look at the jealousy and the strife that's happening among you. And then this amazing verse that I wanted to share with us today, 1 Corinthians 3, 16, he says, Do you not know, talking to this divided church, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple You, in both of these verses, the you in the Greek is plural. Later on, Paul's talking about a temple that's individual where he says, you know, don't unite this with a prostitute and defile it. But right here, the context is the church. It's the body of Christ. It's the temple that is everybody in this room. That's the context. And he says, if anyone, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are the temple he's talking about division if you destroy the temple of god god will destroy you later on in titus 3 he says avoid foolish controversies genealogies dissensions and quarrels about the law theonomist For they are unprofitable and worthless as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So here is my question. What are you willing to destroy a church over that will cause a middle schooler in this room to be like me and grow up wondering what in the world are Christians all about? That they're willing to divide over such small things when eternity is at stake. So as we approach an election season, <laughs> I guess we're in it, right? It's getting hotter. No matter what you think about Trump avoiding the Republican debates, remember we have bigger fish to fry than endless campaigning and freaking out about policy. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are. As you strive for the faith, it may be that you need to get more involved in our local government just like those two homeschool moms did. I'd advocate for that. 
There's another kind of unity later on here in Ephesians 4. It's not automatic. Um, He goes on to talk about God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So he gave us these offices to teach the people, to equip them to do this ministry, right? Okay, Um, where am I? (laughs) Uh, Until... So verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. That's a different kind of unity than maybe the unity before. The unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a thing to aspire to. I love that. The unity of faith. This isn't your personal trust in Jesus. This is the truth, the body of the truth that the whole of us, all of us agree on and are unified by. And it's the body of truth that points us to the truth, the capital truth that is the head, that is Christ. Right? So that, verse 14, as we enter into a season like maybe the previous season where we had COVID and everybody's on the internet looking at what everybody says... And the algorithm is feeding us stuff, and as we look at it, it's feeding us even more stuff, and it's alarmist, and we're getting afraid, and we're like, oh, I got to do something, and blah, 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 so that we may no longer be children. You know, those babies who get selfish and just need milk. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It does sound a lot like our social media algorithms. Thank you, Steve Parker, for that analogy (laughs) earlier this week when I was talking to him. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped with each part working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I believe we'll become unified the more we do this which means we've got to talk openly, but we have to do it in gentleness and humility and respect in love. Paul said at one point in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that division may even be necessary, not saying that division is good, but basically if you're not unified, that faction will draw out ultimately what is genuine and true as you have open and honest conversation so that the truth capital T, may be unified and we can come to unity in the faith. I think that's a good battle to have in some contexts. I'm guessing most of us will find ourselves holding positions in those moments, in those conversations, as you get coffee or beer or whatever uh, with that person who's got a different point of view than you, but is destined for eternity in heaven. And you may go, oh, wow, I hadn't thought that all the way through. I need to go back and think about that and study the Bible. And you get together again and you talk some more. Maybe you'll realize you've been acting divisive, or maybe the other person will. Maybe even slandering or gossiping. It'll get revealed as we do this in gentleness and humility and love and openness. And it might even hurt a little bit to realize that about ourselves. Because stepping into a pattern of humility, is, it's a dying to myself. It's going to cost something. And I'm not saying don't do politics, don't do government. Like I said, if you, might, you might come to the conviction in this season that you need to do more. Maybe more than you ever dreamed you would. This city needs Christians in governmental positions, people who are striving for unity and maintaining the bond of peace. There's a whole generation looking to the church to rise up and actually do this instead of bickering and fighting behind the doors. You know we're doing that in public, right? It's not a private thing. So if you speak something that maybe I don't agree with, or maybe I speak something that you you don't agree with, or something like that in context, you know, let's just consider it together in humility. And let's go to the Bible, and let's do Bible study, and see what the Word says, and let it correct both of us. And let us be conformed, as Romans 8.29 says, we're predestined to become more and more conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And of course, there's heretical stances on this stuff. And there's really, really, really bad political stances like socialism. (laughs) Again, I'm not talking about external conformity, complete consensus of thought on all things. Christian unity doesn't mean we lay down our passions, our uniqueness, the things that God made us unique. What it does mean is that through the blood of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, each one of us is growing up into him who is the head Christ. And as we do so, we'll get closer together in love 
and humility. Jesus made a great sacrifice. His life on the cross, his blood shed, as Zeke alluded to earlier, so that we could dwell together in eternity with God and with each other. He made a great sacrifice. Are you willing to make a great sacrifice for unity? What's at stake is the world knowing that we belong to Jesus. I think of Acts chapter 4, where Peter and John are brought in front of the civil authority. And they're told to stop preaching the truth about the gospel. And I said, nope, we're going to have to disobey you. Even though we know that the civil government is put in place by God, and you know, later on Paul would write in Romans we're supposed to submit to that because it's God's magistrate. He doesn't bear the sword for no reason. But there's a moment where Peter and John said, you know what, you're asking us to do something different than what God has asked us to do, and we must preach this gospel. Had they listened to the government at that point, I don't know where the church would be today. Instead, they went out, and they started sharing more and more. But what happened was that civil magistrate, I love the verse in Acts 4, where the magistrate looked at them and heard them and realized they had been with Jesus. Is that what the world sees when it looks at the American church? Those people have been with Jesus. It's obvious. Two verses to end with. Band guys, come on back up. John 13, 34, 35. Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you that you are to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How did Jesus love? Love like Jesus, it's our tagline. He gave up his life. Are you willing to for the sake of one another? By this, all people will know. And then Jesus' great prayer that he prayed right before he went to the cross, his last big thing he prayed. Not, he didn't pray to his father, let the disciples all come to one mind in theology and never be divided on their role of government or whatever else, their opinions. He said, I pray that they and they that will come next, that's the church, that's us, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And here's, here's the implication, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Church, does the world look at us and see the Father in us? Will they believe based on our unity? Or will they see division and just walk away?